Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. It's hurting to see scientists have rapidly developed numerous vaccines against COVID. This high level of science is employed on a day-to-day basis in the agricultural world. And as with vaccines, there are many who readily accept these outcomes and others not so easily. Plant breeding has advanced hugely in the past 50 years, from targeted breeding to genetically modified crops and now gene editing, all of which are having an impact on agriculture worldwide. We are joined today by Ewan Mullins from Oak Park to get an under the hood look at plant breeding and biotech developments. I first ask Ewan about the types of plant breeding which have been developed over the past 200 years or so. Okay, Michael. So uh, it was back in the 1800s when uh, an Augustinian monk um, in Austria by the name of Gregor Mendel discovered basically that when you crossed two varieties, the siblings or the progeny had traits or characteristics similar to the parents. And most importantly, those traits were inherited in a particular ratio. Um, and that really, he was working actually on, on uh, pea. And by crossing, for example, a red flower with white flower, he discovered that some of the progeny were red, some were white, and some were a mix of both. So that really was the, the start of it in terms of inheritance. And you come forward 100, 150 years, what we saw in the early 1900s was a rapid acceleration in, in people researching and looking at the ways to make plants yield more, yield better. And one of the techniques that was adopted there um, was what's called mutagenesis. And was what, out of interest, that actually came out of the Manhattan Project, um, or was a spin-off from that, because what they discovered was when they were blowing up all these nuclear bombs for testing and stuff in, out in the Arizona desert and Nevada, they realized that a lot of the plants that could be maybe 20 miles or 30 miles away from ground zero were showing very different traits. And they were looking stunted, they were looking mutated. And what they realized and very quickly was that you can use mutations to change how certain traits appear in plants. So what you're doing is you're changing the DNA. So, I mean, that's really been the bedrock for the last 40, 50 years in terms of breeding new varieties. Using mutagenesis, be it uh, chemical or physical, for example, x-rays or other forms of radiation, or you can go back to the traditional way, which has been there for thousands, 10,000 years, which is transferring pollen from one flower to another, taking the progeny and growing them up and seeing do they have the particular traits that you want, uh, be it uh, disease resistance or you know shorter stem or more grains per, per ear, et cetera. But that's really a slow process. It takes a year, obviously, before you get a result. So just with that, then, Ewan, <clears throat> natural selection is, is obviously relatively slow, as you say. Um, and, and, and GM then, as in genetically modified, is, is obviously a different process, that, like you were talking about a second ago. How much quicker or much better is GM in comparison to natu- natural selection? So basically, as you say, natural selection just takes time. And it's, it's, it's nature basically selecting out the bad fruit, uh, the bad seeds, the bad progeny, so that the survival of the fittest pertains. Um, and that's, that's what evolution is. So you go back to Charles Darwin. He was the first person to put his finger on it and realized that actually only the fittest of the species, be they plants, animals, whatever, were surviving the pressures and the stresses that they were encountering in their local habitat. Um, so natural selection now, of course, nowadays we, we use uh, DNA fingerprinting techniques. So what does that mean? 
basically every gene has its own DNA fingerprint and using technologies that have been you know invented and developed in the last 20-25 years it's possible to have a DNA fingerprint for every particular variety of a plant so that can that can speed up natural selection a bit so for example if you if you wanted to make a, a new wheat variety or a new barley variety it takes approximately 10 years from the moment you make the first cross and the cross is taking pollen from one plant and transferring it onto the flowers of another so the crosses the plants that will be grown in 2030 are the ones that will be derived from crosses made this year and next year. So it's very important you get your parental material correct. So, but as I said, it just takes a long time. You're looking at, you know, approximately 10 years for cereals, about 15 years or 13 to 15 years for potatoes. When it comes to GM techniques though, what you're doing is <clears throat> you're accelerating the process greatly. So while it might take 12 to 13 years to produce a new potato variety by crossing two parents, uh, say, for example, rooster with Maris Piper, um, if you were to use a GM technique to improve the performance of a particular variety, say if Maris Piper, uh, you wanted to make it blight resistant or, or more resistant to drought, for example, um, you could change the genetic makeup of that plant using a GM technique and that would deliver a plant for you, a new variety in probably about six to nine months. Now that variety then has to go through all the standard regulatory testing and evaluations that a new variety would have to do. So you'd add on another, you know, three to five years on top of that. But basically GM as a technique is a way to accelerate the breeding process, ideally probably cutting it in half. Okay. So before we get into maybe a little bit more in depth into the GM side of the house first, but just, just to concentrate a little bit on um, the types of crops that GM is suitable for. I've never hear, heard necessarily of any barley or wheat or oats um, being a GM or, or the possibility of Ireland Irish farmers potentially growing them as a GM. It's all maize or cotton or soy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, you're right. And I mean, and they, it's, it's, it's really been focused, I suppose, since the, the first GM plant was actually a tomato back in 96, which the flavor saver tomato, um, which had a longer shelf life. And when it was first generated, obviously it was the, the producers and the inventors at the time felt that it would revolutionize food waste because the material would last longer. So the consumer has longer to consume it basically. Um, however, there was a backlash to it, both in parts of the US, in North America and in Europe. And a lot of that was driven by obviously fear of a new technology and, and the unknown, um, which is not, not extraordinary and, and is understandable. But what happened then was the, the main companies that uh, at the time, the ag biotech companies, decided to shift their efforts and focus on the large commodity crops, effectively the cash crops, the soya, the maize, and as you said, cotton, and to a lesser degree, rice. Um, and there was a lot of patenting and, um, frameworks and intellectual property systems put in place to kind of ring fence the, the application of the technology to those main commodity crops. And that drove the development of GM acreage through the late 90s into the 2000s. Um, and today we primarily still have soya, maize, uh, cotton. Uh, you also have canola or oilseed rape. And then I suppose in recent years, we've seen things like GM papaya in Hawaii. Uh, we've seen GM eggplant in parts of India. Uh, and there's also uh, other crops such as GM rice and GM banana in trials in parts of Africa and Asia as well. So it is expanding primarily because a lot of the patents are now coming off 
are, are, are coming off patent. So the, the, the regulatory, or sorry, the, the legal restrictions on the use of the technology have, have loosened up. So it's limited by patents to a degree rather than crops? It, it was initially at the start. And also one of the, the ways to, to modify a particular plant is it's all based primarily on using a bacteria called agrobacterium. And this is a naturally occurring bacteria. And if you're walking through a forest and you'd see them in many trees in Ireland, you'll see a kind of a tumor or a mass of cells, a mass of growth sticking out the side of a tree. That's pr driven by agrobacterium, which is a soil pathogen which infects plants, a lot of plants, and it transfers its own DNA into the plant. So the plant then starts to produce proteins uh, and goodies, sugars that feed the bacteria. So in effect, it's, it's a bit like a parasite, but a parasite would typically kill the host. Agrobacterium has no interest in killing its host. It just wants to live off the host. So it was back in the 90s when scientists discovered, well, if we were to substitute the DNA that it transfers into a plant with, for example, um, yeah, a disease resistance gene or a herbicide tolerant gene, well then, could we make the plant cells resistant to the herbicide, for example? So that, that's what happened. Now, the thing is, is that agrobacterium as a pathogen in itself, it elicits a defense response from a lot of plants that have evolved to, to resist it. And that's why as well, in addition to the legal and, and, the, um, and the IP side of things, is that certain plant species are more amenable to the use of agrobacterium than others. Um, but in the last 20 years, an awful lot of work has got into addressing that, that sort of work. Okay. So if you go down to the GM techniques, are there different types of GM techniques or is it all pretty much the same thing? Uh, no, there are. And I suppose like any technology, like, I mean, you compare it to a smartphone. If, if you asked a teenager nowadays, you know, would they be interested in an iPhone 3 or an iPhone 2, they'd look at you weirdly because they, they wonder why in God's name you'd want to even contemplate using something like that. And similarly with, with a lot of biotechnology applications, they're constantly evolving. So there's actually like two parallel streams going on. There's, there's the application of the techniques to various different crops. And parallel to that, there's uh, people working on making the techniques more efficient and better and, and easier to use. So since the first techniques in the mid 90s, that really started out with what's called transgenics. Um, and that's taking a gene from a species that would never naturally mate or cross with the target plant that you wanted to change. So for example, if you wanted uh, golden rice is a great example where they took genes from daffodil and put them into rice to increase the vitamin, vitamin A content of rice uh, to alleviate vitamin A deficiency in populations in Southeast Asia. But like a daffodil and a rice plant are never going to cross. Um, so that's going to need GM techniques. More recently then, there's a development of what's called cisgenics. And cisgenics is transferring a gene from one species to another species, but those species are related. So in effect, it's wild potato to a conventional potato or wild apple to a conventional apple. And that can happen um, through natural pollen transfer. But I mean, if you transferred pollen from a wild potato to a conventional potato to get a new variety, um, you're looking at probably 25, 30 years plus before you're going to get a variety that would meet consumer needs and demands. Um, and then more recently, of course, the gene editing, which really has been the, the uh, seen a monumental change in the application of breeding techniques. Okay, so if we'd looked at the, I suppose, the majority of what's imported in Ireland, let's just say for feed, for, for, for soya and for maize, what sort of GM technique is being used on those crops? They would be primarily transgenics because the majority of that material, actually the overwhelming majority of that material, the maize is herbicide tolerant. 
So they've taken a gene from bacteria um, and they've put it into the soya or the maize to make it resistant to maybe dicamba or glufosinate or glyphosate herbicides. Uh, in addition, what they're doing now is they're actually stacking multiple traits in the same uh, variety. So you could have a variety that is resistant to two or three herbicides because it has two or three individual genes to make it resistant to the corresponding herbicides. And then they would also have put in there maybe two or three um, insect resistant genes. So BT genes, um, which make them resistant, particular lepidopteran um, insects, that caterpillars and stuff like that, that uh, can become quite serious pests on maize in the US and Canada. Okay, and obviously those crops are, they're, they're a very big part of the imports into Ireland. Do you have any idea what sort of percentage that is in terms of GM versus non-GM? I don't, I don't have up-to-date figures. Um, at the moment, for every five tonnes of uh, animal feed we use in the country, we produce one tonne domestically. Um, now, back in 2008, we were importing about, uh, I think it was about one and a half to two million tonnes of feed, and approximately 50% of that was GM. Now, the importation of the GM feed, obviously, is, is driven by the fact that the majority of production of, of, of these commodities in North and South America is the, with the use of GM varieties. So that's why they're being imported. And they go through a rigorous assessment process through EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority, to, make, to maintain their, to make sure that they're safe, both for um, animal feed use um, and they end up, obviously, in the human food chain. And you, just in terms of the, um, you mentioned uh, transgenics and cisgenics and, and perhaps the cisgenics because it's uh, a related plant that they're using to transfer the genes and, and potentially, I suppose, maybe more acceptable. Does legislation or leg legislators uh, treat them any differently from the point of view of one is GM or one's not so much GM or are they both the same? No, from a legal perspective, they're both considered to be GM. But what's interesting is the, the, the Eurobarometer survey, um, which is basically consumer surveys done by the European Commission every, every year across various different aspects of society, looked at a survey, um, I can't remember, I think it was 2011 or 2012, where they surveyed consumers and they asked them a question about cisgenics versus transgenic um, in terms of acceptance. But I think there was a 61% uh, acceptance of cisgenics as opposed to about 30% acceptance of transgenics. Um, and that, that was quite insightful at the time and, and very revealing because it shows um, that people are more willing to accept uh, the acceleration of a natural process rather than the development of a new process, which is what transgenics would be in itself. Okay. Well, look, that's, I suppose, progress to a degree. I mean, everything may be in stages and... People don't take change, um, uh, I suppose, lightly and uh, they stick with what they know. But coming back just a little bit, I know here in Oak Park, um, we had some trials. I think you were, you were uh, running trials in terms of GM on potatoes. You might maybe just give us a quick overview on, on, on what was involved there and how that um, worked out. Okay, so that was basically, um, we were evaluating a cisgenic potato which had been developed by colleagues in Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And this was part of an EU funded project called Amiga, when the title uh, was assessing and monitoring the impacts of GM crops on the agro ecosystem. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but basically what we had was we had um, synchronous trials here in Oak Park and Carlo, um, as well as uh, trials in Wageningen in the Netherlands. Because in the Netherlands, whereas we think we have problems with late blight, 
their, their problems are, are far more severe. So they, just like us, are heavily reliant on the use of fungicides. So the cisgenic potato variety that we used and we evaluated had been generated uh, through the use of a cisgenic technique. So it took a gene from a wild potato uh, and that gene conferred immunity to late blight disease, Irish strains of late blight, and also immunity to Dutch strains of late blight. And we know this because over the three field seasons that we evaluated it here in Oak Park in the field trials, we saw that it reduced the need for fungicides from a, a typical uh, annual usage of 13 sprays down to one to two sprays per season. In addition to that, we looked at environmental bioindicators, which are organisms that tend to be very sensitive to disturbance to the soil or, or any change in management in a crop. So that included fungi, bacteria, uh, little plant nematodes, uh, and also colleagues in the Netherlands came over and they looked at above ground uh, fauna diversity as well. So what we saw was that the environmental impact of just growing potatoes was reduced by over 90%. And this is, this is, I mean, this is very significant because we're looking at farm to fork goals uh, out to 2030, where we're being told to reduce inputs by 50% of use of PPPs, uh, plant protection products. So this particular technique has the real potential to reduce it far more than 50%. Um, so it is, it is a very significant technique. So Ewan, the, the, the impact, as you say, there on non-target um, species, if you like, or flora and fauna in the field, um, was that in a very short term or was that a little bit more longer term? So that was done over the three years. So they were looking at, uh, they would have different traps at ground level and approximately two feet above ground. And they were taking three to four sampling times through the growing season. So we were trying to capture as many bioindicators, and as you said, NTOs are non-target organisms as we could to see was there any difference between the three treatments in the experiment, which was basically the cisgenic line, which had no fungicide, it just had that single wild potato gene. We then had the original variety, which was Desiree, which had fungicide. And then we had the original variety Desiree, uh, which had no fungicide. Okay. So, you, you know, and then on the other side, I think at the house in terms of research, I know you've been working very uh, intensively on in this GM area, I suppose, in the lab, maybe more so out in the field. And you came up with a, uh, an insever, I think is what you call it, uh, in terms of an alternative way of, uh, of GM. You might just maybe just give us a very brief outline of what's involved there and, and, and uh, how exciting, I suppose, it might be for the future. So earlier on, I mentioned the fact that agrobacterium um, elicits a defense response from certain plant varieties and plant species because it is a natural pathogen. So that's one of the reasons why not as many species have been transformed or engineered using GM techniques. So we were curious to find out would there be any other soil bacteria out there that maybe could transform and engineer plant species but wouldn't have the restrictions that agrobacterium had. So it, it was very basic blue skies research uh, and through many, uh, many long hours of PhD students and the postdocs that worked on all of that work, we were able to identify one particular strain called Ensifera adherens. And Ensifera lives naturally on the roots of plants. We took it off the root of an oilseed ray plant, and it has shown the ability to transform more varieties within individual species than Agrobacterium does, especially actually in crops like potato, We've also looked at oilseed rape 
uh, safflower, barley, and a few other different types of species, rice as well. And we've had a lot of interest in it uh, around the world because basically, obviously, it, it, it overcomes some of the limitations of agrobacterium. It's not as efficient as agrobacterium. So while it will engineer a broader range of varieties, it doesn't necessarily engineer to the higher rate that agrobacterium will do. Um, so that's why it just needs more research and development. Okay, geez, a very exciting and, and, and cutting edge type research there. We, we mentioned CRISPR technology, or you mentioned CRISPR technology a little bit earlier, or gene editing, if you like. Um, we're not necessarily going to go into it now because we don't have enough time today. Um, but do you think that the CRISPR technology will be a part of crops in the future in Ireland? Not in the near term, because uh, in 2016, I think it was, the European Court of Justice um, uh, basically made a ruling that gene editing was a form of GM application and GM technology. So as a result, anything that is edited and is to be grown in a field, be it for commercial or field trialing, has to go through the current legislative um, uh, testing and 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 regulations that are required, and that that is is a, that's quite a time-consuming and expensive process. So that has effectively put a break on the development of novel crops across the whole of Europe using gene editing techniques. And this is in contrast to other jurisdictions outside of Europe, which are forging ahead with the use of of precision breeding to develop new varieties. Well, actually, it's, it's not even new varieties, I suppose. It's, it's, it's to enhance existing varieties. So they might have a particular rice plant, a rice variety in China that performs really well, but is uh, susceptible to mildew. So they've edited it. And now that particular plant is basically, that variety is the exact same, just with a single change to one gene. And now it's mildew resistant. So it, the, the, the potential benefit of editing is huge. Um, but within Europe, we do need to have serious discussions about its application. Okay, Ewan, thank you very much for your uh, very insightful knowledge. And uh, obviously there's a huge amount in this area and hopefully farmers will see the benefit of it shortly. Um, I'd love to invite you back uh, next year and we will go through maybe the CRISPR side of the house in, in a little bit more detail, because that's probably more the future than GM potentially here in Ireland. Uh, so with that, Ewan, thanks very much. Thanks, Michael. That's it for the Tillage Edge this week. My thanks to Ewan for joining me on the podcast. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more farming information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with more Tillage news and advice.